0: Welcome back to America's Constitution, and happy 4th of July, America, uh, and the world. So uh, t- we're recording this on
1: July 4th, and uh, happy Independence Day, Akil. Uh, thanks, Andy. Um, happy Independence Day to you and to our audience. And, um, and speaking of uh, July 4th uh, in particular, uh, there is a, uh, uh, an op-ed that I wrote, now, now sometimes they're called... Um, guest essays um, in the New York Daily News, uh, all about uh, July 4th um, and the interesting exchange between John Adams and Abigail Adams in 1776 about uh, women and, uh, and, and their rights uh, at, at the time of the founding, um, very famous exchange in which Abigail uh, urges John to uh, remember the ladies. Um, and uh, so the piece in the New York Daily News is uh, called, We the Men. A question mark on the founding fathers' exclusion of their wives, sisters, and uh, daughters, and mothers. It's uh, an adaptation of uh, the book, that the uh, the words that made us, the new book um, that does have really a whole chapter on the Declaration of Independence. And actually, I
0: I, I recommend this op ed. I think it had a very interesting take on what Abigail Adams is talking about in her letter, which I hadn't read before, but I I'm persuaded by. So I, I won't give away the uh, you know, the punchline, but uh,
1: <laughs> um, I do recommend it to our, to our listeners. Thanks, um, Andy. And one other thing, speaking of July 4th, um, some of our audience uh, may also be interested in a National Constitution Center podcast that uh, I did um, uh, in, with Jeff Rosen, um, who's going to be a guest on our show, of course, um, and Steve Calabresi on the meaning of the Declaration of Independence. And that's on the podcast for the National Constitution Center um, for uh, folks who might be interested. It's about an hour.
0: Also, C-SPAN has, uh, has shown your uh, New York Historical Society uh, event on the, uh, the words that made us. It was
1: on yesterday, I believe, and it's going to be on again tomorrow, I think. Um, uh, but if you miss these, because obviously we're not uploading this uh, for a, f- a few days, you can always get it on uh, streaming video uh, from the C-SPAN site.
0: And also many of these videos are linked on the website at QMR.com. Um, so, which if you haven't checked it out, uh, that's of course where our podcast lives. Um, many of you listen to our, our podcast on uh, Apple Podcasts or other services, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, etc. Um, but if you go to the website at kilomar.com slash podcast dash uh, two, that's where we, we upload the show notes. So there's all kinds of interesting stuff there, um, including clips from Casablanca, Goodwill Hunting, and so forth, but also serious law review articles, op-eds. There's a, a really a wealth of, of, of things. And actually, if there are um high school or college uh, teachers or professors in the audience these are sometimes arranged to make uh you know convenient lesson for for
1: uh classes and don't forget our monty python clip yes. about the spanish inquisition <laughs>
0: <laughs> well everyone forgets about the spanish inquisition
1: <laughs>
0: so so we we've been we started our supreme court uh unit or theme or series uh last time and um, we were able to uh, talk a little bit about the court in general and get through uh, a profile of three of the justices. We're going in, in order of seniority. Uh, we, the chief justice first, even though he wasn't on on first, he technically uh, has seniority of a sort by, being, by virtue of being the chief justice. And um, we spoke about uh, Clarence Thomas and Justice Breyer. And you know, the, the term ended this week, and I think many people were thinking, you know, perhaps Justice Breyer might retire, it might be a retirement announcement. That hasn't happened, still could, but hasn't. Um, and I think we, we uh, held off a little on some of the things we were going to say on Justice Breyer just because if he retired, we were going to then devote a, a whole episode to him. But given that he hasn't, perhaps uh, you have a, a bit more to say, Akil, about, uh, about the justice
1: yeah I want to tell at least one more story um, and I also want our audience to to know that I, um, because I'm so close to justice breyer um, uh, I, I was perhaps particularly harsh um, in my uh, in, in, in my comments um, the uh, uh, be, because I don't want our audience to think I just play favorites for my friends um, so I spent more time actually talking about uh an opinion, a majority opinion that he wrote that I think is particularly unfortunate. It was this first big abortion majority opinion uh, back in 2000. Uh, and and he subsequently written an important major- abortion case. But but um, I was very critical of that that first one. And I spent much more time talking about that than all the great things about Justice Breyer, in part because I th- I thought that he might step down and we just do a whole episode um, and I could talk about all my my, my um, t- touching um, prior um, stories and, and, and anecdotes. Um, but I do want to just talk about the proverbial elephant in the room for our audience, which is, hmm, it looks as if he may not retire um, right now.
0: So how might that decision of his to not retire at this point, if that is his decision. How would that fit into your sense of his bio or his uh, legal philosophy?
1: What I've been doing uh, in this series thus far, and hope to continue to do, is legal realism of a certain sort in describing the justices. What's legal realism? Well, legal realism is a school of thought in the 20th century it has different flavors in its crudest version it's just the idea that there's no difference between law and politics and justices are just politicians in robes and uh, most of their opinions are just window dressing um, at best Um, it's really just what their political preferences are now I don't believe that Um, uh, and indeed talked about for example why I really like the fact that John Roberts, in his biggest decision ever, the Sibelius case, actually crossed the party lines. He was the only Republican to do so. Um, but here's um, a gentler version of legal realism to be contradistinguished from legal formalism. Legal formalism being the basic idea that the, the relevant legal materials determine everything um, in constitutional law. That would be the text of the Constitution, its history, original intent, um, the structure of the document, the precedents, um, the the spirit of the um, uh, um, American people. That um, that these things are. Almost like mathematical inputs, and you s- stick them into the law computer, and it spits out the results. That would be um, a certain caricature of of legal formalism, and that the the judge um, is um, almost an automaton and has no real discretion or role. Um, and the crude version of legal realism is the exact opposite. No, it's just all politics, and there's no law, and it's and it's just um, um, either the judge's politics or his. Or her personal idiosyncrasies, um, what the judge ate for breakfast, so to speak. That's that's a a classic line. I was giving you a softer version of legal realism. Judges aren't automatons. um, um, Even if you think that they, um, uh, though, aren't politicians, they may be um, umpires sometimes of a sort, but even the umpires are not the same as... Uh, the video camera, um, The umpires are human beings and can make mistakes and have a certain point of view. And, and, and Andy would, uh, because he's an ophthalmologist, would remind me that some might have better eyesight than others. Um, uh, so um, a softer version of legal realism is, let's try to explore the, the deep background of these justices, what makes them tick legally, um, and it's not just their politics, but their their legal dispositions. What, make, um, what, made John, what makes John Roberts tick? I think, in part, his legal training, um, which is Harvard-friendly Rehnquist. Um, Harvard College, Harvard Law School, clerkship first with um, the, uh, the great Judge Friendly, and then, with, in my view, the not-so-great then-justice, later Chief Justice, William Rehnquist. But these were formative legal experiences on Roberts that shape how he thinks about the law. And, and it would be different for someone who didn't clerk for Friendly um, and, um, and Rehnquist, and Friendly in turn clerked for, for Brandeis. And then I told you a story about how you need to understand um, that Clarence Thomas is an outsider, um, uh, he grows up in Pinpoint, Georgia, he's a black in a white world, he's a southerner in a Yankee-dominated legal culture. Yes, he went to Yale Law School, but he's not really of Yale Law School quite. He, he's very much a guy who thinks for himself and, and sees himself as a kind of um, um, uh, self-taught uh, independent thinking fellow. Not so different, you see, then than Hugo Black, who also uh, came from the outside, uh, not from the um, the fancy schools, not from the Northeast. And even though Hugo Black was a white former Klansman, but later renounced that, of course, a liberal Democrat, and Clarence Thomas is a black conservative Republican. Oh, they have certain things in common, which you crude legal realism wouldn't um, uh, highlight because we just focus on their their race or their their politics. Um, but sophisticated legal realism is trying to understand their um, um, cast of mind, how they how they think. And then I talked a little bit about Breyer, and I said, well, he's he's an establishment person, um, San Francisco, um, and then uh, and Stanford and, and Harvard and Harvard um, uh, law school faculty, um, and um, I was a Senate insider. He worked for. Um, uh, Ted Kennedy as general counsel of the Senate Judicial Committee, very much you know an inside um, uh, um, person in some ways, an establishment person. So, so that was the picture of of Breyer that I I, I painted, and he's going to maybe be, be more uh, comfortable with precedent because that's a kind of the the legal insiders game: uh, judges and lawyers talking about uh, rules that have been created by judges and lawyers and. I think constitutional law should be more than that. It should be about text, history, and structure. Breyer is not so much a text, history, and structure person because when he was a professor, he was an administrative law professor, not a constitutional law professor. Um, And even among constitutional law professors, some of us are text, history, and structure, originalist types, and others focus more on cases, court watchers, Um, but, but Breyer... Um, I suggested at his best could do text history and structure well, the Noah, Noel Canning case, um, but in um, this first abortion decision uh, where he wrote for uh, uh, the court, Stenberg versus Carhartt, he was too much just focused on the Supreme Court as the be all and end all. The great and powerful Oz has spoken, and that's the problem with a certain establishment insider um, point of view, I suggested. Um, so now in that tradition, though, of legal realism, let me um, try to, so for each justice um, in what we did thus far, I actually tried to connect some of their most significant decisions with certain aspects of their personality, their character, their identity, um, their... Um, legal approach and background and philosophy, but not in just a crude way. They're Republicans, they're Democrats, um, they're blacks, they're whites, but in a a more sophisticated intellectual biography way. Um, um, Now I'm going to take the most recent decision, apparently, of of Breyer, not a judicial decision, Um, but his apparent decision not to step down at the present moment and analyze it, again, in a somewhat realist fashion by telling you sort of who Breyer is and maybe how he thinks about the world. I'm going to tell you a story about how he joins the bench um, uh, and how that really interesting story about how he joined the bench, and, and the world was different back then, may be influencing his thinking about whether and how to leave the bench and you know the
0: first thing that occurs to me in terms of uh, an influence that you that you just mentioned on on uh, justice Breyer, which i don't think you mentioned in the last episode was his time on the judiciary committee after all the judiciary committee is where you know that where the confirmation battles if they are if battles there are are fought or not fought um and uh I don't know if that, you know, if, the, if there was more comedy on the Judicial Committee, Judiciary Committee, when he was uh, there or not. And that
1: perhaps influences his thinking on this. Uh, so um, your use of the word comedy um, reminds me that I would always talk in my class about comedy and parity, that all federal judges are similar, whether they're Supreme Court justices or lower court judges, because they're all nominated by the president, confirmed by the Senate. They have life tenure. They have guaranteed salaries. So I talked about parity, how there's a similarity between Supreme Court justices and lower court judges, which is why Supreme Court judges sometimes actually, um, even today, sit by designation on lower federal courts. And, and in the old days, they used to ride circuit. Um, and, and, uh, and So I used to talk about parity of federal courts and comity, which is a certain reciprocity, um, um, a respect um, given by one person or institution for another person or institution or one legal system for another legal system. And and I remember reading a final exam once in, in this course I teach on federal courts and, and the person was talking about the parody of, of federal judges and the uh, comedy of federal, <laughs> federal judges. And and so I think I have to articulate better. <laughs> um, enunciate well, so. at least. <laughs> okay, so... Here's the most dramatic story about that. Let's talk about the committee that Breyer himself received from that very judiciary committee on which he was general counsel. So take a step back. He's a Harvard professor, and a Ted Kennedy. Um, is senator from Massachusetts, and Massachusetts and a liberal senator at that, and liberal Massachusetts senators and, and Harvard University are tightly intertwined and have been for uh, a long time. We could talk about Charles Sumner uh, um, uh, 150 years ago. Okay. So Kennedy needs, um, he's the chair of the Judiciary Committee at a certain point, and so he wants um, a great staffer. So what of course, he's going to reach um, over to um, uh, Cambridge, to Harvard, to pick that person. And of course, what's their um, their law school is great. They also have a school um, of a kind of government officials in exile. What's it called? The Kennedy School of Government. Don't you see? So he reaches out and finds Steve Breyer. So Steve Breyer is his legal um, guru, um, and. Uh, and so, what actually? And, and Breyer has to, uh, told this story uh, to my students. I've invited him over the years to come uh, a guest lecture, and he's very graciously um, a, a, a agreed on occasion. And he tells the story of his socialization on this uh, uh, Senate Judiciary Committee. So, on the first day, Ted Kennedy is walking him around um, uh, the the building. Um, the, the the office um, uh, the, the, I think you know the the the, the Hart, um, office building and the and the um, uh, Russell office building um, I think there are three R- Russell Hart and Dirksen um, but so he, he's he's walking um, Steve Breyer his um, new hire um, uh, in the office buildings so that he, Breyer can be introduced to the other senators on the committee and he says well now Here's Senator Dole, Bob Dole, Mister Republican, and um, um, and he's our friend," says Kennedy, in front of um, Dole. So Dole understands, you know, the, the meaning of all this. And whenever you know we can help him, of course we always do. And now here's my friend, um, Orrin Hatch. You know, uh, and whenever um, he calls, we respond immediately because that's really important. So, um, and that's who Steve Breyer always was just by nature. He's very, um, agreeable and, and trying to get along uh, with everyone. No one who knows him well, no one who knows him well ever says anything negative about him. But Kennedy is telling him on his first day, these are the traditions of the Senate, um, which, and and people might think, what are you talking about? The Senate was different back then. Um, and you're going to see that, um, as they finish the story. Um, and, uh, Ted Kennedy and Orrin Hatch did not always vote together, but they really were the best of friends. And Kennedy himself would say, "Orrin Hatch helped save my life. He got me off the booze and off the women, um, and and helped me get my life back together. And I, I I sort of remarried and recentered my life. And and Orrin Hatch actually cared about me as a human being and 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 helped me." Um, get, um, get clean. Um, wow. That's an amazing story because Orrin Hatch is the longest serving, I think Republican Senator in the history of the Senate, at least uh, up to that point. Um, and just so you see how different the Senate later became, Orrin Hatch does not have this, did not have this relationship with Pat Leahy who later became, um, uh, the, the, um, replacement for, um, Kennedy as the chair of the committee. Leahy and Hatch, it's oil and water, they do not like each other at all. Um, Other people who have chaired that committee, just to remind our audience, include a a senator from uh, um, Delaware, I think his name was (laughs) uh, Biden, Biden, that was it, Joe Biden. Okay, this is an important position, being chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And, And over the years, Orrin Hatch has been chair, Pat Leahy has been chair, Ted Kennedy has been chair. Joe Biden has been chair. So really interesting position. Um, uh, More recently, uh, Chuck Grassley, um, others. Okay. But Kennedy's the chair. Oh, and you're seeing it alternates. It's not always a Democrat. It's not always a Republican, but goes around, comes around in the Senate in the old days. So, Comity, reciprocity. Ted Kennedy knows he's in charge now, but one day, actually, Warren Hatch might be in charge, or or maybe Bob Dole is being ch- in, might be in charge. And so he's telling this new staffer, Steve Breyer, whom he's borrowed from Harvard, uh, he's on leave from Harvard, um, to be his legal guru. You know, when uh, we try to work with folks on the other side, and one of the big things that Kennedy does um, is champion airline and transportation deregulation. And Breyer is a lawyer economist who knows a lot about um, regulation. And that project of deregulation did not pass 5149. It passed as a broad bipartisan bill. Um, and here's an example of, of, of um, uh, the kind of thing that you have to pay attention to. Airline deregulation um, involved um, issues about um, uh, um, local airports, because some local airports um, in a totally deregulated world can't quite you know, justify their existence um, because they have very low traffic. Um, when you had a regulated system, there were all sorts of cross subsidies. Now, if you're going to move to an unregulated system, what about a local airport that's really important to that local community? Well, I promise you, the senator from that state cares a lot about that. Um, and if the senator is a Democrat, oh, of course you're going to try to make some sort of special accommodation. Maybe it's temporary, or maybe there's a little bit of, a, of an earmark here, or a subsidy there, or some special little um, um, adjustment or accommodation. But what Breyer did on Kennedy's orders is, oh, he tried to accommodate Republican senators as well as Democratic senators. This is connected today to, let's say, the infrastructure bill and trying to see if you can get um, Republican buy-in rather than just trying to pass it by the nearest of margins um, um, with only Democratic vote, which is a very hard thing to do. Okay, so on the Judiciary Committee, Steve Breyer was beloved by the Republican senators. They thought he was a stand-up person. He always answered their phone calls. If they had concerns, he tried to accommodate them. Even if, when he's helping Kennedy draft a bill, even if he had 52 votes for the bill, and maybe you could get it through, because there was less filibustering back then. Um, t- um, today, it's just filibusters almost a matter of course. Even if you could get it through 52, 48, why not, if you could tweak it just a little bit, Um, uh, bring on 15, 20, 30 Republicans and pass it with a much broader coalition. That was Breyer's philosophy um, as Ted Kennedy's general counsel, and Kennedy was encouraging to do that. Um, And now, how does Steve Breyer himself become a judge? Here's the story. Um, uh, Ted Kennedy runs against an incumbent president in 1980, um, in the primary. Loses... Um, um, wasn't very articulate early in the process. Some of our audience may remember he fumbles, it's just an easy question. I think when Roger Mudd asked him why he wants to be president, and he doesn't have a clear, crisp answer. But finally, and, and, he, and he gets his butt kicked um, by an incumbent president. An incumbent presidents have all sorts of advantages. Um, but at the end of the campaign, after he's lost, he finds his, his voice, he finds his footing, and gives one of maybe his two greatest speeches of his life at the Democratic National Convention. And, and, and you're remembering that, I see, Andy, you're sort of nodding. Your, 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 yes, the your dream head. will never die. Yes, the dream will never die. And if you say, why one of his two? I think his eulogy yes. to um, uh, his brother Robert um, was an absolutely compelling moment very authentic and and i'm i'm choking up even as i remember that
0: um actually i uh i have a personal connection to that because i delivered the eulogy at my uh father-in-law's uh funeral and i paraphrased
1: that uh that speech at the end okay so so you know what i'm talking about okay and um uh so the question is in the spirit of kind of party unity, whether Ted Kennedy is going to um, endorse and strongly support Jimmy Carter, whether at the end of the convention they're going to both raise their um, uh, clenched um, arms um, together um, in the traditional sign of party unity. And um, Bernie Sanders basically did not help Hillary Clinton sufficiently in 2016. And I will not forget that. And I want our audience to understand that. Um, so, you know, if you didn't like four years of Trump, you thank Bernie Sanders in part and his supporters who, who did not um, close ranks. And, and Carter was worried about that. And in fact, Carter does lose, um, but not because Ted Kennedy um, uh, undercut him. Ted Kennedy at that convention in 1980. Um, uh, they, they he was given time to make his um you know far, farewell speech to to his supporters and it, uh, carter treated him well at the convention let him have his time let um let his supporters have their their moment it was hard for them to to lose it's always hard to lose and then they united and at some point carter asked kennedy like well, what's your price? What, what, what do you want? How can, how can I um, help you? Um, I, you're nodding because you and I are fans of the crown. you got me interested in the crown. And at one point, you know, um, um, Elizabeth is trying to reconcile with Philip, you know. And she says, like, well, what, you know, what would it take, you know, to, so that you would be really fully in this marriage? She says, you mean what's my price? She says, what would it take? Um, uh,
0: uh, and you remember uh, what the price was, right? Um, He's,
1: yeah, yes. He,
0: you know he's named a prince, and everybody in the palace has to shave off their mustache.
1: Uh, that was an amazing episode, and uh, we saw it together. <laughs> yes. I think actually, yes. a- a- Andy. So, mm-hmm. um, okay. So, what's Kennedy's price? What would it take um, so that he'd be all in? And one thing he said, well, I think he may have asked only for this one thing. He says, "You know, I've got a a, um, a friend." He's very, very good. His name is Stephen Breyer. I think it would be lovely if um, he could be on the United States Court of Appeals for the First Circuit, um, which is headquartered in in Boston. And senators traditionally have some input into the the process of um, uh, uh, selecting uh, judges from their own home base. It's it's part of a a complex uh, etiquette called senatorial courtesy. And so Kennedy actually said, I'd love it if you could help my friend Steve Pryor. Um, uh, the, um, Carter goes on. Kennedy really does try to help um, Carter win re-election. Kennedy is not successful um, in that. Uh, Carter loses, and, here's the, and Ronald Reagan wins. Now, here's the payoff point. That after Jimmy Carter has lost the election when Ronald Reagan is present elected of the United States because the Democrats aren't contesting it you know, preposterously. They just concede we, we lost, fair and square. Carter nominates Stephen Breyer to the First Circuit. Um, after the November election has happened, uh, um, um, we, we've talked about the lame duck period in, in our early podcast. All the Republicans have to do is just delay um, for a bit, and that seat... Will go unfilled. All they have to do is pull a Mitch McConnell, um, to be an anachronistic metaphor, um, and that seat will be filled by Ronald Reagan after his inauguration on January 20th. It'll go to a, a Reagan person. That's all they have to do. Um, and it, and the Senate has a million ways to delay things. You know, they 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 they, they um, you know, it's like Paul Simon, "50 Ways to Leave Your Lover." They have 50 times 50 ways of saying no or, or doing nothing. They, they've taken doing nothing to a high art form. And they don't do that. They don't sit on their hands. They accelerate, if anything, the process of confirmation so that um, Stephen Breyer gets confirmed on, uh, on Jimmy Carter's watch in the lame duck Um, they treat him as if he were a senator himself and give him, as it were, that's another aspect of senatorial courtesy. Senators who are nominated for positions tend to get um, very respectful treatment um, from their their, um, uh, colleagues or former colleagues um, when when they're up for a position, whether it's a judicial position or a cabinet position. Okay, so why am I telling you this long, you know, shaggy dog story? Stephen Breyer is the product of bipartisanship. As a judge, he's the Republicans' favorite Democrat. That's his image of the Senate. He wants it to be that way. Again, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Um, we can talk about that. On his vision of the court is the court should be a place like the Senate, where people you know, cross party lines and, and work together and broaden coalitions. Um, And how does he get to be on the Supreme Court? It's a similar story. I told you how he got to be on the bench. Um, And and, um, uh, eight of the uh, uh, nine current justices were um, sitting federal court of appeals judges at the time of their appointment. That's how you get onto the Supreme Court, by being um, a court of appeals judge. And so I just told you how Stephen Breyer becomes a court of appeals judge. Um, His career, of course, began much earlier as... um, um, Going to Harvard Law School, which is important, and being a law clerk, indeed a Supreme Court law clerk for Arthur Goldberg, which is important. If you want to be a judge, go to Harvard or Yale. It seemed, you know, when we look back, the the pattern wasn't always clear at the at moment, but looking back, go to Harvard or Yale Law Schools, um, and 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 clerk, ideally clerk on the Supreme Court, and that's the pattern. Um, Amy Coney Barrett clerked on the Supreme Court for Scalia, Gorsuch clerked on the Supreme Court um, for Scalia and Kennedy, Kavanaugh clerked on the Supreme Court for. Uh, uh, Kennedy, Kagan clerked on the Supreme Court for Marshall, uh, Thurgood Marshall. Um, uh, Roberts clerked on the Supreme Court for um, uh, Rehnquist. Breyer clerked on the Supreme Court um, for, for, for Goldberg. The only ones who didn't clerk on, for the Supreme Court were Thomas, who didn't clerk, um, and um, Alito, who clerked for um, uh, um, a federal court of appeals judge. And am I forgetting um, anyone I think all the rest of them clerked. Um, uh, so, and some of them clerked for multiple justices or Sotomayor. judges. Sotomayor. Oh, Sotomayor didn't clerk. Okay. Uh, um, but she was a district judge and then a court of appeals judge um, and then a Supreme Court judge. So, so, so thank you, uh, Andy. Six of them clerked. Um, five of them for the Supreme Court. Um, uh, Gorsuch for multiple Supreme Court justices. Um, um, so, um, Breyer, uh, um Harvard Law School, then he clerked. Okay, but then how does he get onto the federal bench? I just told you that story, which is a bipartisan story. Now, how does he move from the Federal Court of Appeals to the Supreme Court? Again, it's a bipartisan story. Bill Clinton is now um, uh, president, not Jimmy Carter. Um, Bill Clinton's options are limited. If he's going to pick a sitting Federal Court of Appeals judge, the problem is the Democrats have been out of presidential power for 12 years. Um, Reagan, Reagan, H.W. Bush. There are very, very few sitting Federal Court of Appeals judges who are still young enough, because you don't want to put someone on the bench if they're 65 or something, given uh, uh, the life tenure um, uh, incentives that we talked about before. You want to put someone younger who's going to be around a long time. And there are only about five um, judges who were appointed, a Court of Appeals judges, Federal Court of Appeals judges, appointed by... um, Uh, uh, by Jimmy Carter, um, who are still young enough um, uh, by the time of of Clinton. And one of their names is Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and another is Stephen Breyer. And there are only two or three others, in in fact. Now, you can go off the menu. You can pick someone who's not a sitting federal court of appeals judge. You can try to pick a state judge or a a, a political figure, um, which was a a pattern um, earlier in American history, senator, governor, Earl Warren, you know, was a gov- three-term governor. had run for the, the, the vice presidency. Hugo Black was a senator. Some of our, gr- you know, great jurists have have not been that. But the current model seems to be sitting federal court of appeals judge, and and Clint was tempted to go off the um, the menu, uh, to pick actually Mario Cuomo, um, uh, a pr- a father of um, the current uh, governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, um, or. Um, to pick, um, uh, uh, I think Bruce Babbitt from um, Arizona, and and the, the Republicans came to him. They said, "You can pick Mark Cuomo." And why would Clinton like that? Because he thinks that Mark Cuomo is like a, a big has a big, um, pers- and and he wants someone who's not a narrow technocratic um, legalistic judge, but you know a big persona person. So he's tempted to do that, and the Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Come to him quietly, say, well, you can do that. You can go for Mario Cuomo, and you'll have a fight on your hands, because we don't love that. We think he's an activist of certain sorts and not really a lawyer's lawyer and a judge, judge's judge. So you can do that if you want, and you actually have uh, control of the, uh, of the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee, but just barely, and, and maybe the guy will go through and maybe not. You can do that, or you can pick our friend Steve Breyer, the Republican's favorite Democrat, and we'll guarantee at least 90 votes. And that's what Clinton does. So getting on the bench, uh, uh, Breyer is the product of a certain bipartisanship. Getting on the Supreme Court, Breyer is the product of certain bipartisanship. Now I've just told you a legal realist story of a certain sort about maybe how the world looks um, to Stephen Breyer and why that might be influencing to some extent his thinking about how he leaves the court. Um, um, Now, I know what you're going to say, um, and I'm going to let you say it, which is like, how naive is that? The world is different, and what about, what about, so, so have at me.
0: Right. Well, I think, you know, when, when's the last time that the Senate confirmed a, uh, a, you know, a justice nominated by a president of the other party?
1: Um, on the Supreme Court today, yes. only one justice is actually the product of um, uh, 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 um, a bipartisan process. So we've got um, three Democrats who are um, uh, members of the Democratic Party who were nominated by a Democratic president and confirmed by a Democrat-controlled Senate. And that's uh, Breyer and Sotomayor and Kagan. And we've got five Republicans who are members of the Republican Party who were... Um, uh, nominated by a Republican president and confirmed by uh, a Republican Senate. And that's um, Roberts and Alito and the the, the three Trump appointments whom we're going to talk about um, in our next session, um, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. And only one um, was the product of a president of one party and a Senate confirming Senate of another, and that was Clarence Thomas, and you may remember that was ugly boy, was that ugly, and, and by the nearest of margins. And do you remember who the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee was there? Was that, he was a Democrat um, uh, chairing um, those, those hearings? Biden. What was his name? Yeah, it was Biden. Biden, yeah, Biden. I think, What? what whatever happened to him?
0: <laughs> yes, but I'm a, so, you know, so my point is that, um, you know, as you said several times, it's a different world, and, you know, we... we still remember Merrick Garland very well, and there you had a uh, Democratic president that was not able to get his nominee through. Now, it's true we have a Democratic Senate now, um, and that's why Stephen Breyer should resign, because his job is to, at this point, the most important thing that he can do, I would say, is to have a a role in his successor. Um, You know, he's when's the last time that he wrote an opinion that would have been far different had his particular sensibility not been present on the court. Okay. Um, In other words, you know, where the person that is likely to replace him would not be able to do nearly as good a job because of his of his unique abilities. I would I would say it was a long time ago. And this um is Hold this on. is
1: also brilliant—a legal realist sensibility of a certain sort that justices should care not just about the opinions they contribute to, but um, their successor. And ideally, they should have, want a successor who has a similar um, legal sensibility. Which, if judges were just automaton, if it was just all just the f- um, if every case was decided by the the formal juridical criteria, text history, structure, um, uh, precedent, um, and the like that you could just put into a computer, it wouldn't matter who the judge was very much, but of course it does. We've talked about how sometimes some judges cross the aisle, but I'm enough of a legal realist to understand that most of the time, most justices actually have voted in the recent era in line with... Um, the party that nominated them. And if they haven't, in part, it's because the party that they've nominated them have, have drifted from their own view. There were some people, Harry Blackman, David Souter, um, John Paul Stevens, who basically started out as Republicans and, frankly, ended up as Democrats because they were Northern Republicans and the Republican Party abandoned Northern Rockefeller Republicans um, um, and all sorts of northern Rockefeller Republicans become Democrats like Jim Jeffords, for example, um, or Lincoln Chaffee. And their juridical counterparts, Jim Jeffords was from v- Vermont um, and Lincoln Chaffee was from Rhode Island. And their juridical counterparts are David Souter from New Hampshire or John Paul Stevens from uh, Chicago, which is a northern city, um, Harry Blackman from Minnesota. Um, okay, um, so you're saying, Justice Breyer, why wouldn't you want to just be replaced by someone of similar sensibility, and that? And so now is the time to get off, while uh, someone a present of your sensibility is in the White House, and a Senate of your party um, is in control, and you can't take that for granted. So that's what I hear you saying, and it's a great question. It's what lots of people have been saying, um, and you also introduced one um, other little thing. You and I talk about baseball. Um, um, you still um, uh, uh, follow the game, um, I, I, I uh, less so. So you're always telling me what, what, what's happening of late with the Mets and the Yankees and, and so on. And, uh, and you've been to multiple games in the last couple of weeks instead of um, doing your homework for this podcast, I, I should add. But um, OK, um, so you introduced a certain concept that's the baseball, that's the equivalent of wins against replacement. Okay, suppose actually, you know, a certain player were taken, you know, out of the lineup, but they would be replaced by someone else, and would the replacement be much different or, in effect, be able to contribute to the team to about the same extent? And you're saying, well, you know, um, is Justice, you know, given that Justice Breyer has um, contributed to the team, uh, but if he weren't on the team and you brought in someone else, wouldn't um, that, that replacement also... Um, uh, help be able to help the team, um, and for many more years actuarially. Just because Breyer's um, 82, and presumably the, the replacement would be 28. Oh, I, no, no. Uh, um, but but the replacement might be 45. Um, mm-hmm. uh, um, and we talked about the incentive to go young uh, created by life tenure, and why 18 years would be a better um, model, perhaps, which is what I'm going to be testifying about um, in this Biden Judicial Commission later this month. Okay, um, all fair points, but let me identify four or five things because you remember Garland, but maybe you remember Garland too well and we're fighting the last war. Um, so here's the most important thing of all, Andy. If Biden doesn't win re-election or a Democrat, um, suppose something, God forbid, would have happened to Biden, so, 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 someone else. It could be Kamala Harris um, or someone else. If, if, the pre- if, if the Democrats don't win, re-election in uh, 2024, um, game over. Okay, that's far and away the most important thing because even if Breyer is immediately replaced by you know the person of your dreams, there's still three Democrat appointees and six Republican appointees, okay? So the game has to be in the end. Keep your eye on the prize, winning in 2024, and it's not actually altogether clear that the best strategy is... Um, for him to step down now it might be there are some advantages to that but let me actually work through the scenarios and actually treat our audience explain to them how the game is actually played because they understand the rules of baseball better. They understand that sometimes you want to play the infield back or sometimes play, play the infield in. There are risks either way. Are you going to go for the, dub, you know, try for the double play or something else? Are you going to um, do the double switch? Are you going to do the double steal? You know, when should you take out the starter? And, and baseball fans endlessly debate all these things because sometimes, you know, there, there might be advantages one way, but, you know, there are risks also. Okay. So you remember Garland. But Garland was a totally different situation in a totally different part of the relevant legal cycles. So first, I want to remind our audience, notwithstanding whatever they've heard, Garland's seat was not stolen. Okay, The game is, if you control both the Senate and the presidency, then you're going to be able to get your eye through. If not, it's not so clear. The Republicans, the Democrats, it's true control the presidency. Barack Obama was present. He won in 2008. He won re-election in 2012. But he lost the Senate in 2014. So, um, um, so it wasn't just automatic. Um, McConnell, you say, well, but he refused to give Garland a hearing. Okay, but so what? Suppose he had actually given him a hearing. It's not clear that Garland actually gets a majority of votes on the Senate Judiciary Committee at that hearing if they vote by party line. Um, and even if he gets a majority on the, um, in the committee, it's not so clear he gets a majority on the floor vote. So it wasn't so clear he goes through, in fact, which is why he wasn't pushing for a hearing that much. And the, and the Democrats uh, weren't pushing very much. How many times did Hillary Clinton mention Merrick Garland's name at the Philadelphia National Convention in 2016? The answer is zero, OK? And they, they weren't pushing for it. Here's why. They were playing a certain game. They basically figured, well, I'm gonna. Hillary Clinton thinks I'm gonna win. I'm um, in November, and then when I win, Garland gets confirmed in the lame duck or in the in the new administration. And by the way, in the new administration, you know. I, might, I have the legal option of withdrawing Garland's name and putting up someone um, uh, younger and, and more liberal. And the Republicans aren't going to be able to complain because that was the risk they took when they refused to take the kind of moderate compromise candidate who was Garland. No one, so every one of us Democrats basically thought we were going to win in November and that seat was going to go to us. Okay, And it didn't, but not because it was stolen, because Mitch McConnell had a very, very edgy strategy. It turns out he won. He won the presidency, he won the Senate, and therefore he he won that Supreme Court slot, which went to Gorsuch. But that was a very edgy strategy. It wasn't stolen. Okay, that's that's point one. But now point two, the Breyer situation is very different. he, He says, fine, I'll step down next year, one year from now. Well, presumably, unless something you know dramatic, Biden is still present. That wasn't true for Garland. We lost the presidency and it shifted to Trump. That's not going to happen in the next year. Donald Trump's not going to be present. No Republican's going to be present next year. And I'm going to explain to you how um, um, uh, um, presidents control the agenda, and that's hugely important for the appointments game. Hugely important, and, and, and it gives us all sorts of advantages. In fact, in terms of winning in twenty twenty two, the mid midterm elections, and in twenty twenty four. So, um, so he's still going to be president, and presumably, and I know you're going to push back here, and you deserve, and you, you should that uh, uh, Chuck Schumer's still going to be um, majority leader a year from now. Okay, um, and. Um, and if Breyer steps down a year from now, um, and he, he might prefer that because it looks a little less political than as soon as you know a, a person from his party uh, comes on stream, as, as soon as that term ends, he immediately resigns. He might think that makes the court look a little too political. He doesn't like that. Um, that's not his sensibility. That's not his biography, where, where he's coming from. But he might think, why not just wait a year? Um, it, it's a softer, less political exit. Um, but... Um, Chuck Schumer will be able to confirm my, my replacement between June uh, or, or July of uh, 2022 and um, uh, 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 November. And if not then, in the lame duck, okay, because they're going to be in charge all the way through um, the, the, um, until January 3rd when the new senators would come in. That's plenty of time for Chuck Schumer to confirm my successor. And in the meantime... I'm still sitting. My uh, retirement would be contingent upon the replacement of my successor, as uh, Justice O'Connor's uh, was, and, and Justice Kennedy's um, was. So why the hurry? Um, and furthermore, he might think, you know, if we um, uh, the seat were to be filled, let's say, in um, not the new nomination in um, mid-July of next year, um, with the confirmation hearings in uh, early September, th- th- um, that could be a big boost for my party, a huge win going into the midterm elections if Biden picks someone really great, rallying all the Democrats, demoralizing the Republicans, especially if he picks someone really good. Maybe actually um, we're going to get some um, Republicans to join on because McConnell can't stop the thing if nothing changes and it's still Schumer. Um, uh, uh, Susan Collins will say yes. Lisa Murkowski will say yes. We start to split the Republicans. Um, uh, All the Democrats will be united. And this could be an advantage for the Democrats going into the the midterm election. So that might be, you know, part of his calculation, um, that it's not altogether clear, even from a political point of view, that now is the best time to step down. Um, uh, And uh, uh, and it's uh, not crazy. So you you just said it. It's not
0: clear. What is clear is that the better chance of filling that seat with a Democratic-oriented or Democrat nominee democrat approved nominee is now right in other words between because the chance of the democrats losing control of the senate in the next couple of months is smaller than the chance of them losing control of the senate in the next
1: year Right? Okay, so let, let's, talk, let's talk about that. So you're worried basically about a death or resignation. Now, formally, death or resignation could hurt the Democrats if it's a Democrat who dies and not replaced immediately by a, um, a Democratic um, uh, a death, a replacement a by the governor.
0: But, or a defection. But, it's also possible someone could switch parties.
1: Well, you know, lots of things are possible, but no, hold on. But, but happened, it could, but Jim it could Deffer. help us. Okay, we can't just have this defeatist idea. See, Garland has so freaked people out. Uh, look, um, the, the, the the Republicans could actually uh, drop a seat, and then we have a little bit more running room in, in the Senate. Um, that doesn't moreover, help us.
0: That doesn't help us confirm this seat.
1: We're well, gonna, so only we're if com- you think only. Hold on, Andy. Only if you think, which I disagree with you about, that. Um, Susan Collins would never vote for a Biden nominee. I think she will. And I know her track record. She never, she hates to vote against nominees. So that's interesting. So, our fans out there, they're not, they don't know the stuff that they know their baseball, okay? So, you actually need to know the players and you need to know their, their track records. Susan Collins does not believe, actually, she should vote against Democrat nominees. Lisa Murkowski doesn't now. You nominate. Look, there are advantages to um, see because to be able to pick someone, you pick someone good, who's actually competent and has um, a compelling life story. You unify all the Democrats, and you actually start to split the Republicans, and when better to split them. Um, than actually September before the midterm election. These are at least possibilities that you need to think through our audience. You guys are so you know, expert on everything, you armchair quarterbacks. But Steve Breyer actually spent a lot of time in the Senate. He knows some stuff, and he knows the, some of these people, and he lives in Washington, D.C. So don't just assume that he's some chump or fool. He's not. And, and I'm actually explaining to you, ooh, now, worst-case scenario. Okay, um, and, and, and let me now actually read you what I wrote um, in America's Constitution, a biography. Okay, so here's what I wrote in 2005. Although senators would have broad discretion to say no in the confirmation process, the president would enjoy several structural advantages in the foreseeable give and take. A presidential nomination would define the agenda, forcing the Senate to consider not merely an abstract ideology, but a flesh-and-blood person with friends and feelings. Even if senators preferred someone else, they could not guarantee the president would ever propose that person. Indeed, senators who sank the president's first choice might face a worse-to-them candidate the next time around. Different senators might be at cross-purposes, making it difficult for the body to speak with one voice, as could the president. When senators left for home, the president could stay put, would stay put, and could make interim recess appointments, ensconcing his men in office temporarily. Okay, so let me now work through how that um, uh, applies in the current situation. And remember, it was different for Garland because that was the end of the Obama administration and we lost the presidency. But we're not going to lose the presidency no matter what happens to Breyer. And that's hugely important. We have the, if this is a football game, we have the ball. We control the agenda. Um, um, And and we can put it in the air or we can keep it on the ground and there are advantages to each one. So let me tell you about one person whom I really admire. And I don't want to, I'm I'm not bad-mouthing anyone else. I don't know all the possible candidates. But one person whom I very much admire who could be named by President Biden to fill this lot is named Leondra Kruger. She's a, she went to Harvard undergraduate. She went to Yale Law School. She was editor-in-chief of the Yale Law Journal. So yes, people are saying, oh yes, Ivy League, Ivy League. We've heard all that before. But she has sterling credentials. She happens to be African-American. Um, she was an African-American editor-in-chief of the Yale Law Journal, just as Barack Obama was actually at the time the first African-American president of the Harvard Law Review. And John Roberts was um, a managing editor of the of Harvard Law Review in, in about the same um, era. Um, so, not the same year. Um, so, um, and, and Leander is now a very well respected justice on the California Supreme Court. She's not a sitting federal court of appeals judge, but, but she's a justice of, of a very respected state Supreme Court. Um, uh, she, um, I respect her a lot. Um, and I recommend my best students for clerkships in her chambers. Now, suppose she were the nominee, and and, and the scenarios are um, if he he steps down tomorrow, she could be the nominee later this month, or if he steps down next year, either way. So my point is, you are saying, well, now we control the Senate, and Schumer can get her through, and why wait? Because maybe something happens, and and McConnell controls the thing. I'm saying, fine, is McConnell going to stonewall this person? That's not going to look very good. In fact, she has she's a person with friends and a family, and he can say, "Well, I'm just not going to give her a hearing." Okay, so American people won't even get to see her, not at all. She can introduce herself. She can go on the Colbert Show. Um, she, the Demo- Chuck Schumer can say fine if you're not going to hold a hearing we're going to hold our own hearing walk across the street C-SPAN will be there You can invite all the Republicans and she can introduce herself to the American people and she's a compelling person now why didn't Garland do that because I actually back then told the Democrats this is what you can do if you want to because it's edgy, it's not very traditional, he was a more staid person, and we all thought we were going to win in November, so all we do is just wait, Hillary Clinton wins, and then he gets the seat anyway, and if he doesn't, actually, she can put in someone younger and more liberal, and and McConnell will have been taught a lesson, because this is what happens when you don't actually you know, find compromise in the middle, and, and you take an extreme position, and so it's hindsight bias when you look back and say, oh, Garland, that was a disaster, and all the rest. They got ridiculously lucky, winning by the skin of their teeth, the Republicans did, in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, um, and, and Michigan, uh, the big blue wall. Um, and uh, so, so suppose now, um, so if Chuck Schumer is in control of the Senate, if, if, um, if Breyer were to step down tomorrow and she were to be nominated, yes, she goes through. And and she's great. But your worst case scenario, Breyer waits and steps down a year from now. And in the meantime, instead of the Democrats, instead of it being status quo in the Senate, Chuck Schumer is still Instead of uh, there being more um, Democratic uh, seats because um, of of a death or resignation on the Republican side um, uh, with a Democratic um, uh, replacement, let's imagine It works to our disadvantage. Okay, and that's a possibility. I admit it. Um, um, But if that's true, yes, um, even then, um, if McConnell's in charge of the thing and he tries to stonewall, we have cards to play. And Susan Collins, I'm not at all sure, sticks with... Uh, uh, with um, uh, Mitch McConnell because she's not going to like a woman being treated this way and neither is Lisa Murkowski and you might say oh but they're going to vote with McConnell no matter what no they're in the driver's seat they're the Republicans Joe Manchin because if Mitch McConnell you know, starts to push them around, they can say, listen, pal, you push me around, I'm going to walk um, across the corridor and ask um, Chuck Schumer if he'll let me caucus with the Democrats and make me the chair of whatever committee that I want to be chair of and and get all my bills through. They are in a... And see, now the Republicans in this alternative universe, which is the worst case scenario, you see, um, are now in charge 5149. Um, Oh, They've got to herd their cats, and that's not gonna be so easy to do. And even worst case scenario, they managed to do it. Boy, I wanna run on that. I'd want to run on how Leandra Krueger was mistreated by Mitch McConnell. This is what they do to talented, you know, black women, um, or you know, decent people. Um, so and 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 that that's wind at our backs for the midterm election, mobilizing our base, because they don't always show, off, show up in midterm elections um, uh, um, and the like. And Biden needs uh, uh, black women help support, uh, help, help make him president. He needs them to show up two years from All I'm telling you is um, it's not the case that, it can, that Breyer's waiting only makes things worse for us. Now, final scenario, and then I know you're going to have at me in the second round. Um, um, even if we, um, uh, um, uh, M- uh, McConnell um, was, is in charge a year from now, which I'm not conceding, you know, that is so clear, but suppose he were, worst case scenario, and he manages to successfully stonewall. Okay, try to do that. Um, and, 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 and he, and the Republicans somehow, prevail in the midterm elections, you know, despite their misbehavior, which is not going to play well for fair-minded people in middle America, I think. Um, so there's, there, we still control the ball. We are, you know, Joe Biden is still the quarterback of our team, and we have the ball. And he gets to nominate someone else, and someone else, and someone else. And they can't keep dinging really good people with family and friends and look good. In fact, um, when you, uh, now this is a football analogy, you know, uh, anyway, I mean, I'm talking about baseball. When you flood the zone, you know, they can't actually defend against every possible receiver. Um, and I'm saying that because I know how the appointments game is played. And, 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 um, and it's just very, very difficult to do if you want to keep Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski on board, and, and even if you manage to, to do all of that, oh, I'd want to run on that if I were Joe Biden in 2024, and that may help us win re-election by galvanizing our team, you know, because we're not going to let them do this again. Um, and then you, 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 you can invoke Garland. So um, um, anyway, that, the, the and, and might all these things be in the back of Stephen Breyer's mind? They might, because he's a politically savvy guy. I think he knows how the Senate did operate. I think he probably has a sense that the Senate is different today. Um, But don't think that this will all end badly, because um, what I'm not doing is... Um, defending Ruth Bader Ginsburg's decision not to step down when the get um, was, was good. That was, I think, a, a different situation um, in, in, in some respects. Um, uh, I think she, her health situation was different. She had had cancer before. Breyer's um, um, actually quite um, um, spry and healthy. Um, uh, um, do I want him to step down? If he wants to, so he can have the rest of his life. I'm his friend, you know. I I think, gee, you, you know, you 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 don't have to keep staying there. We can, um, um, we, um, if you want to live the rest of your your life and have a really great retirement, you deserve it, boss. Um, but um, I'm not joining all these. You know, uh, people on the far left uh, demanding that you retire. Now, I don't even think they really understand all the political um, uh, dynamics of the situation and the rules of the game. So I,
0: I've i got a lot of things to say on, on this. First of all, in terms of your last point, I think you, you got it backwards in terms of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The health situation is irrelevant. OK, we're not talking about trying to keep Breyer on the court for... Seven more years, okay, so that he can outlast, you know, a possible Republican uh, elector, you know, elected president in two thousand twenty-four. We're talking about whether he steps down this year or next year, okay. That's so. If he were to die, you know, God forbid, I don't wish him ill health, but if he were, that's the same as a resignation, as far as this, as far as this goes. And what we're talking about is when should he resign? Okay, so uh, well,
1: just on that, it, it, it remember. It is different if, um, God forbid, someone dies or resigns, because then the court is short-staffed. The resignation option does permit the Justice, uh, Justice Kennedy, Justice O'Connor, to stay in place until a successor is confirmed.
0: Right, and that is a card here because the Republicans benefit from stalling. Um, if uh, if Bre- if Breyer, if there's a vacancy versus Correct. filling it with a Democrat, so so that so
1: let's just hang on let's let's elaborate that Andy because I think you're right on that point so just explain to our audience a little bit more clearly if you will,
0: right. So um, what we're talking about here is if if you play it out, let's say uh, Breyer resigns but says the resignation will not be effective uh, uh, until his replacement is confirmed. Um. So under those, under that scenario, the balance, the ideological balance of the court is six three, which mm-hmm. is what it is now. And then mm-hmm. when, and then when he's replaced, it's six three. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if he were to, if he were to die, um, then it would be six two, and it would remain six two until someone is confirmed to replace him. Right. So, for, if you're a Republican, six two is better than six three. Exactly. You, so. so there's an incentive to you to, for you to stall. So, right. that, so it is different. That's true, but that isn't really what we're talking about, is it? When we're talking, when we were talking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, we we're talking about what's the what's the balance going to be ultimately? Is it going to be five? Is it going to be you know six three or is it going to be five four? That's well, really- with Ruth
1: Bader Ginsburg, what I meant is, I thought the percentage move. But I never said anything publicly because um, I, she didn't ask me and, and, and it was her call and I thought public statements actually are counterproductive, frankly. Um, but if she had stepped down in Obama's first two years when he controlled the Senate, um, then she would have been guaranteed to um, be replaced by someone really of, of her sensibility. Um, even if she had stepped down um, contingent up upon uh, the, the uh, confirmation of her successor when the Republicans controlled the Senate, so long as Obama was still president, um, um, I, I think we, we could have gotten someone pretty good because the, Repo- the president has massive agenda-setting advantages in the appointments game by keep proposing, 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 and it is very difficult politically for um, uh, the Senate to keep saying no to, to good and decent people or trying to stall them. Um, so so um, and in, But instead, truthfully, I think she wanted to be um, uh, replaced um, uh, uh, by the first woman president, Hillary Clinton, and, and that was k- kind of sentimentally important to her, but um, she underestimated the risk that Hillary Clinton would not be elected to replace Obama. And here's why I think you know, she made a big mistake in that, because she's not a student of history, um, because I know it is very hard for one party to win the presidency three times in a row. Um, um, and the last time, and that's been especially true for Democrats, so she was just taking for granted that Obama you know, would be replaced by Hillary Clinton the last his, his wing woman um, the last time a sitting democratic two-term president watched the inauguration of his hand-picked successor was Andrew Jackson and Martin Van Buren in 1837 okay so um, she didn't didn't I think you know fully factor in that there are ebbs and flows, there are cycles in um, the American presidency the American people tend to just get tired of one party after um, eight years. Um, and, and it's hard for one party to win three times in a row, which is what we would have to do for her dream to come true, to be replaced by the first woman present nominating, obviously, a, um, a woman to replace her. That's what her dream was, but that was um, risky. So when I was listening
0: to you just now, you this is the argument you made. If Ruth Bader Ginsburg had stepped down during the first two years of the Obama presidency, she would have been replaced by a person of like sensibility. Period. The end. Mm -hmm. Then you went on with a long discussion of how it might have been okay if she stepped down in the second two years and here's various things that might have worked out and so forth and with Stephen Breyer well you know they're going to listen to Akil Amar, who's going to tell them that if Mitch McConnell won't give you a hearing you still can hold your own hearing which by the way they didn't do when Merrick Garland you know was nominated oh you made the same suggestion and they didn't listen to you so now you think they're going to listen to you because it didn't work out for them but let's face it the 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 thing that's more likely is that they're going to continue to not listen to you, you know, on, on this. Okay, so that <laughs> so, so so yes, if if you you know if you were in charge of the world, this might make sense. Okay, um, but you know, it what it, what this really comes down to after you know this this lengthy and interesting and you know educational argument that you made is how important is it to be sure that we re- that Stephen Breyer is replaced with a justice of like sensibility versus some perceived possible advantage in the presidential election of 2024 that you think could happen if we fight it out, you know, uh, and the Republicans show their true colors. Okay, that, that might give us, you know, some advantage versus replacing the justice now. Okay, so, hold on. Um, so, uh, now, I say that... that The Republicans didn't suffer at all in the 2016 election for um, what was perceived, although I know you've made the argument that it's not the case, but what was perceived as a gross violation of norms. That's the way it was perceived. Whether or not in fact was, you know, is is another matter. Um, They didn't suffer at all for that in the election, as far as I can tell. Um, Why not? Because when people vote for president, they're also voting for the court. Okay, that's, that's the way that they see it, the, in part. that And we, we've discussed this. That many people will be one issue people. I voted for Donald Trump, not me, Andy Lipka, but me, Trump voter, um, because I, I care about abortion, or I vote, you know, et cetera. Um, so if that's the case, that people care when they vote about the court, we've got a Democratic president, a Democratic Senate, a Democratic House. We've got an aged Democratic justice on the Supreme Court. If we can't fill that seat with a Democrat, you know where are we? Okay, well, hold on. As, hold, as a hold. democracy,
1: right? Right. So hold on. So there are two or three different issues. First is, did I say RBG needed to step down in the first year of Obama versus the second year? No, I didn't. I said she, you know, so I don't think it made that much of a difference. And we weren't
0: 50-50 at that time. It was 59-41. Uh, there was no chance that the Senate was going to become Republican in the, in the second year of the and, Obama and, administration. And, and there is a chance that it could happen in the second year of a Biden administration.
1: There, there is. There's also a chance we could go up from 50-50 to 51-49, which gives us a little bit more running room. Okay, so that's one point because right fifty fifty is is edgy. You have to hurt all the cats. Um, and um, yes, and, but look, we have
0: Susan Collins on the edge either way. You're but, saying, oh, you should count on Susan Collins. Well, Susan Collins is in the Senate now, so you know if we lose one, uh, you know, if fifty one forty nine, yes, it's better, but it's it's fifty one forty nine plus. It, 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 it is it,
1: because suppose, you know, um, um, uh, so um, uh, w- but what I'm further saying is um, that there are a- arguably some advantages filling it closer to the midterm rather than um, now because it's a big deliverable to our base right as we're going into the election because people do have short attention spans. And, and actually, Republicans have done better at playing the court game in uh, elections than the Democrats have. The Democrats, remember, didn't even mention Merrick Garland, and the Republicans did. And well, I think Trump the Democrats had Amy Coney to, Barrett
0: going into the last election, confirmed right before the. Yes, the election. Yes, to... and,
1: and, and, and and the the, the, and the Republicans have done just a better job in general um, uh, at again mobilizing their electors, their voters, with a focus on the courts than the Democrats have, and I think the Democrats have to learn how to play that game better, and, and I'm not saying this is affecting Breyer's calculation, I'm saying if he does step down a year from now, it could end up being better for us in the midterms, um, with Leandra Kruger, that's just to pick her because I, I quite you know, like her, um, 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 it, it, it might be more um, wind at our back you know, more dramatic victory. This is why we voted for Democrats, because, you know, and they actually now did deliver. Biden gave us Leandra Kruger, hooray, and we are unified, and 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 she will be voted for by Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski and maybe Rob Portman and others, and we start to, and then the Republicans will be de, de, um, uh, fractious and demoralized, and they're going to be pointing fingers at each other because they will have split, and we will have unified in September of 2020 going into the midterm. It could actually be better for us. So on RBG, I didn't say, oh, she had to step down the first year versus the second year. Yes, the votes were different then, so it's a different thing. But now you and I are actually talking about the, 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 the strategies, play the infield in or back. You know, are advantages each, each way, their risks each way. So, um, so that's the first point. My second point is, in the worst case scenario, um, He waits too long to step down, but he's still on the bench until his successor is confirmed. And the Republicans manage to stall and prevent and ding one person. They're not going to be able to ding four people. No matter what, Um, for the rest of the Biden presidency, Mitch McConnell can't break Joe Biden's serve that many times in a row just too difficult, I believe, um, as a student of appointment politics, because appointment politics are different because you actually have to, again, ding a person, as I wrote in 2005, with friends and a face, and you can do it once, maybe you can even do it twice, you try doing that five times, so all you have to do is find five absolutely compelling people, and if you succeeded in doing that, I believe and I can't prove this, that that in general would mobilize our guys. We'd be spitting mad in 2024, and the, the, the most important thing is not having three seats on the Supreme Court rather than two, okay? Because the game is five, um, Andy. Hang on. So the most important thing is winning... The midterms, ideally, and, the, and even more important than the Senate elections, even more important than that, the presidency. So don't focus on two versus three on the Supreme Court. Those aren't the relevant numbers. Truth be told, it's 2022 and 2024. And as to that, it's way more complicated than the retire-briar-now um, crowd understands.
0: I, I, I grant you that it's complicated. Um, but I go back to what I said before is that you have to weigh um, the importance of the seat. You're saying, well, it's not, it's about five. It's not about, but to get to five, you have to, it's easier to get to five from three than from two. Um, so at some point you want to get to five. Uh, and, and so it does, I'm not going to, I wouldn't agree to a statement that it doesn't matter. It might not matter in the very short term, but there's going to come a day when it will matter. Um, and so, as I said, the, you weighing the, the seat, the guarantee of a seat essentially versus your impression that this will help us in the, in the election, you know, next year and possibly in 2024. And I think maybe it will, but maybe it won't. I, I just think it's, yeah, it's, are it, it, really, right. it's, it's it, it, really, it, it, that is so nebulous as opposed to the, the somewhat, you know the more tangible notion of this this supreme court seat now well, let me so, just go so,
1: let me go let me
0: go one step hang right on let here. me
1: just on just look y- you read my recent book with great care and i talk about the politics of uh, political theater i talk about um samuel adams making a big deal of um the the tea tax um i've studied gandhi uh, if um i if they really misbehave, okay, I want to dramatize that and then use that to mobilize my site. And the Democrats have been shitty at that, but you can't, you know, just, again... You're drawing the wrong lesson from Garland. The lesson from Garland isn't that Mitch McConnell misbehaved. It's that we didn't respond in the most clever and compelling way that we could. And if we had, and maybe Garland wasn't the person around whom to mobilize because he's um, um, not um, a a charismatic figure. Um, But from your point of view, the worst thing of all is... Or some very bad thing is to go from three to you know to um, not being able to replace the, the the third one immediately. And for me, that can be used to our advantage if Mitch McConnell and his ilk keep misbehaving. Now, if you're um, Stephen Breyer, even if they Breyer, succeed, though, if you're Stephen what?
0: Breyer and you're making this decision and you're looking at at all these things that you're saying. You have to have confidence that the Democrats are going to be able to capitalize on these on these opportunities of opportunities they be that you that you were pointing out. And you just told me or
1: or on, you just think you just it's just wait, 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 just one point one thing. Or you think it's a wash. It's very complicated. So why shouldn't I just do what I think is the right thing for for me in my life and and, and and let the political chips fall where well, they may? Uh, because it won't necessarily, you know, it might help my side it might hurt my side but oh all these things that Achilles is talking about stephen Breyer might say oh i love you akil but no i haven't been thinking about any of that i've just been thinking you know let, let me just do the right thing and and the, and the country um will um move forward
0: well i think it, okay so you're you're postulating in in this scenario that stephen Breyer is not interested in doing a sophisticated analysis of the politics of the senate and so forth Okay. Right. I don't know. I haven't asked him. Right. He hasn't told me. Yeah, in this scenario. Okay. But what he does know is the court. Okay. And I would say that that's where his responsibility lies is that, as I said at the beginning, his job is to get replaced with someone of a, of like sensibility. That's his job at this point. It's the most important job that he has not to try to give Chuck Schumer an opportunity that you just said he's unlikely to to grasp, so then, because- so therefore, uh uh-uh, It's a rhetorical question. Um, so, <laughs> so, so therefore, um, you know, I, Stephen Breyer, I'm not going to go there. I'm going to say, okay, here's what I do have control over. I can, I can make sure that I get replaced by someone of like sensibility, and I'm going to do that. Or I'm going to throw it open to this you know, morass of political possibilities that, oh, maybe Susan Collins will, you know, vote this way, or maybe someone will die, maybe someone won't die. You know, stick with the certainty. Stick with what you can control, Stephen Breyer. Stick with
1: your lane, which is the Supreme Court, not the Senate. Okay, so my thought is that um, it's very hard for me to imagine that he'd want to, that that he wouldn't resign um, at some point in the next three years. Um, and that's the Ginsburg, you see, thing. So as long as he, but my claim is, um, if he didn't resign at all in this um, uh, 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 first Biden term, oh, that's a huge risk, because then you could get a Republican president, and then you've gone down. For, OK. But I'm saying, whether it's this year, or next year, as I would predict, if it's not going to be this year, I would predict it probably will be next year. That could work out well, maybe even better. Um, and if it doesn't work out um, immediately um, next year, he still hasn't. Um, he's on the, the bench until he's um, replaced, and it's a huge advantage for a president to be able to keep. Putting up compelling person after compelling person and force the Republicans to vote against them. Wow, that's a huge advantage that a, that a clever president who understands the the, the repeat game. Um, uh, uh, um, Game theoretical dynamics of the situation, that's a, that's, a, that's a huge advantage. There's a first mover advantage in tennis. You get two um, shots at a serve and, and you get to, to um, place it where you want um, and, and, and put the ball in, in play. Just as tennis has a huge first mover advantage, chess, it's typically thought, has a huge first advantage mover advantage, not in tic-tac-toe, it doesn't matter, because you can draw every time, um, even if you go second, Um, that as long as Breyer at some point announces his resignation when Biden is president, it's a huge advantage for Team Blue. And it might even help Biden get reelected, and, um And maybe, arguably, the closer this is to an election year, which is, you see, the reverse of conventional wisdom. If Breyer steps down next year, it could work out. It could work out better for the Democrats. Maybe not, but it could. It could. But, and again, but
0: it could work out badly, I mean, And we know that it can work out well for as far as the court seat goes if he steps down. Okay. Who won? Barack Obama or Mitch
1: McConnell in the Merrick Garland uh, affair? Um, Mitch McConnell because the Democrat refused to make the court an issue. And, and that they won't do anymore because of all these folks with Retire Breyer and all the rest. That forever
0: changed because of Garland. So, so you feel that they're, that making the court an issue... Is a winning strategy for the Democrats in that scenario.
1: They have to fight the Republicans. You know, fight for their side. They have to fight for ours. Or what good are they? Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Well, I you know I think that it could work out. Um, but I wish we. I I hope we don't
1: have to fight that fight. I really now look. look no, this is this is great because listen, I'm not, honestly. Is there anywhere out there, other than this podcast, that's actually ventilated the different scenarios and explained the game theoretical dynamics, explained to, our, um, to, to people why, in fact, the Garland seat wasn't stolen? That's all ex-post hindsight bias. Um, explain how, even if McConnell prevents a hearing, the Democrats can have their own hearing and, 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 um, and go on national TV. The way... Brett Kavanaugh actually went on Fox when he thought he wasn't getting a, a fair ch- um, a chance to make his, his case in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Has anyone um, really explained the advantages sometimes of, 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 of a martyr, um, a political martyr? Um, and um, has anyone explained the huge advantages of putting up person after person and forcing the, um, uh, the other side to to ding good person after good person who all have faces and friends and families. Um, uh, And, and that hasn't been understood. And, and, and it really explained that the most important thing of all is not actually how many immediate seats there are on the Supreme court, but if you care about the long-term future of the court and you're basically on Breyer's side, how eventually we get to five. So Akil, do you have any other sports analogies for us here? (laughs) So, listen, they're all imperfect, but here are two that come to mind. Um, They're from football. So, teams in the second quarter, it's down, let's say, by somewhere between 15 and 20 points. It scores a field goal, let's say, from the 30-yard line. But there's a, a penalty on the play on the defense. Should you ever accept the penalty, take the three points off the board, in the hope of actually eventually you know, getting to seven. And, and, and football fans will debate whether you should ever take fan, uh, points off the board. And it, it might matter, again, you know, wh- where in the game you are, how far um, behind you are. Of course, it would be idiotic to do that if there's 15 seconds left in the game, um, and you were behind. Um, by two points, you just put three points on the board, but there's a the penalty. Would you ever take the penalty? Oh, we'd rather go for seven. and you know. Uh, so no, that would be pretty idiotic, pretty idiotic to take points off the board, but would, should you ever do it? That's an analogy. And, and the analogy, of course, is you think Breyer stepping down now is basically a sure thing replacement, um, and that's, in effect, points on the board, um, yeah, maybe they don't win the game for us because we, we, we're, we're just at three rather than five. Um, so maybe it's more like the second quarter situation um, where um, uh, um, it, it doesn't win, but, but at least it's moving you in the right direction, you think. And, and should you ever take points off the board, give that up in the hope of, of getting something even better by retiring next year, for example, um, with a, a bigger midterm bump. So I think that, that
0: clarifies um, one difference, uh, possibly, that we're discussing, uh, one issue that we're discussing, which is, is that a, a sensible strategy? Um, the other thing that I think it it clarifies or, or uh, begs clarification for is the question of, of quantifying it. So in yeah. football, you're saying, okay, it's three points, it's seven points. It's more than twice as good You know, to do it this way. But you mm-hmm. and I may disagree on how much better, if at all, it is for the democrats to wait a year which you say gives them advantage in the presidential and or senatorial uh, elections and i'm not so sure so yep. that's for if we agreed on that then we could reduce it to this football analogy
1: yeah. um more readily good second football analogy um a team in the closing seconds of a game is a driving for the winning touchdown. They're behind by, let's say, five points. Um, the quarterback hits an open receiver who has daylight to the end zone. If he goes into the end zone, their team is ahead, but there will still be some time on the clock. Um, does it ever make sense when, you know, there's just daylight, you, you can score... For a clever receiver to, to go out of bounds instead at the one yard line or take a knee at the one yard line with the idea that, oh, instead of the sure touchdown I could get right now, I'm going to actually wait and we'll, we'll score a little bit later, um, which has an advantage because then the other team will have n- no time to, to respond. But does that ever make sense? Would a clever um, uh, coach or receiver ever do such a thing like that that analogy
0: has the advantage of not having a really readily quantifiable uh, gain so in that sense it's it it might be a better analogy but i think otherwise what we really have here is a new definition of a political football
1: (laughs) touche to borrow from fencing yes let me end um this um, uh, session with one more Breyer story with your permission, Andy? Sure, of course. So on his in his first year on the court, um, Justice Breyer wrote an important dissenting opinion. I think it's one of his greatest opinions ever. At the time, I thought um, uh, it was perhaps the greatest opinion ever written by a justice in his or her rookie year. Um, uh, today, I would add to that um, Elena Kagan's um, spectacular dissent in a case involving public financing in Arizona in her first year. Um, uh, John Roberts um, uh, wrote for the court and Elena wrote for four justices in, dis- in what I found was a compelling dissent. But that hadn't happened yet um, when, when in Breyer's first year. And we're going to talk about Elena Um, and uh, 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 Justice Sotomayor and Alito in our next episode um, um, and then we'll do the the most junior three after that. Um, But this is Breyer's first term on the court and uh, the the case is um, a case called Lopez um, and it's about um, whether Congress has uh, the enumerated power to pass the Gun-Free School Zone um, Act, um, which is a, a regulating um, guns in schools. And the Supreme Court, 5 to 4, said that really isn't interstate commerce. It's not really an interstate issue. It's not really an, a narrowly economic or commercial issue. Um, so we don't see it. Um, um, we don't see the problem of th- things spilling over across state lines, the way I say viruses cross state lines. um, And human beings are crossing state lines carrying viruses. And human beings are crossing state lines and falling sick and needing to go to local emergency rooms. So Obamacare is obviously regulating um, uh, an issue that spills over across state lines in ways that call for federal regulation. And the majority says Guns in schools, it's pretty much a local issue. You're, you're, you're not really crossing state lines, typically. You're going to your local elementary school. And if people don't like the gun policies in their local elementary school, they can vote for a different school board. They can vote for a different city council. They can vote for a different state legislature. Why does Congress need to get involved in this? Why don't you leave this to, to states and localities? Um, and actually, that's, a, I think, a fine argument. Um, I actually agree with it. Um, Justice Breyer writes a dissent. Um, And one thing, you you know, the best argument for the dissent is even if you think Congress probably doesn't need to regulate this, we should be deferential to Congress. We're the judiciary. So even if you were a congressperson and you voted against this, saying this isn't really a federal problem, um, uh, that's not the issue, says Justice Breyer. The issue is whether we judges are going to second-guess Congress when it's made a certain decision. And his decision in Lopez was deferential and it was pragmatic, and it was empirical. He had all sorts of data on uh, uh, violence in schools and, and how that cre- uh, connects to GDP, and, and, and the school performance, how it connects to GDP, um, uh, and, and which is um, an economic issue. So it was um, deferential, it was empirical, it was um, uh, very uh, pro-education, um, it was, in a word, actually Brandeisian. These are Brandeis's themes, and Breyer uh, looks up to Brandeis. Not because he clerked for someone who clerked for Brandeis, as did Justice Roberts, but in part because he's, he's a Jewish American. Brandeis is the first um, uh, Jewish American on the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, they're, they're, they're both strongly connected to the Harvard Law School. Brandeis is an icon in Breyer's circles as well as um, uh, in, in John Roberts's um, life and imagination. So, um, so I was trying to cheer Justice Breyer up, um, and I, you know, I told him all these things. I said, you know, no one, um, that I can remember wrote as impressive an opinion in their first, in their first year. Um, and he just looked at me and gave me a, he flashed a, a little sort of smile, a sad smile, and he held up four fingers. Um. Because he was saying, like, Akil, thank you for cheering me up. I know you're my friend. I know you you, you do care about me. But, you know, we both know the game is five. Um, uh, And at the end of the day, retirement now, retirement later, you know, we're still not at five. And you get to five, ultimately, eyes on the prize, by um, holding the Senate in um, 2022. But most important of all... By far, whether you hold the Senate or not, you have to win the presidency in 2024. That's the most important game. And second point that I've been emphasizing is in that game, it's a huge advantage for the president to be able to have Supreme Court nominations. Um, even if they don't go through, a clever president can use that to help him um, in a re-election bid. And we didn't do any of that we Democrats in 2016, Obama wasn't running for re-election, or that's what he said, you know, um, which was a mistake. Of course, he was. Hillary Clinton was his third term, but he was too detached. She didn't mention Merrick Garland not once in four, three or four days at the um, Pennsylvania, at the Philadelphia um, National Convention. These were mistakes. Um, we didn't actually mobilize our folks around the court, and now when we see those mistakes. You know, I hope we don't make them again.
0: Well, it's a Marcus constitution, so you should have the last word. But um, I do get to say goodbye. So, you know, <laughs> I would say that the, uh, that the road to five goes through three. Um <laughs> well put <laughs> and uh also i you know i don't wish justice Pryor ill in fact i wish him a very enjoyable retirement and as a, someone who's retired myself i can tell you that the longer your retirement will be justice Pryor, the more you will enjoy it
1: oh and you'd love him because you are very similar to him you're a family um man um uh, who 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 uh, you know adore your spouses uh, and uh, your respective spouses and uh, um, and your kids and grandkids. So so I do wish him a wonderful retirement when he's ready.
0: Okay, and next week we'll uh, pick up again on the uh, profile of the various justices. Um, we were planning on doing the the second group of three this week, and we'll be doing it next week, um, barring any. Dramatic developments in the interim. So look forward to that. Thank you.
1: Great.